0: chapter seventeen and eighteen of the third volume by fergus hume this librivox recording is in the public domain seventeen the husband at kensington gore to a woman who rules by right of beauty it is a terrible thing to see her empire slipping from her grasp by reason of grey hairs and wrinkles what desperate efforts does she make to protract her sway how she dyes and paints and powders and tight laces all to no end for time is stronger than art and finally he writes his sign manual too deep to be effaced by cosmetics mrs hilliston was not yet beaten in the fight with the old enemy but she foresaw the future when she would be shamed and neglected close at hand perhaps it was this premonition of defeat that made her so unamiable sharp and bitter on the night when claude came to dine she liked claude and had stood in the place of a mother to him but he was a man and handsome so when she saw his surprised look at her changed appearance all the evil that was in her came to the surface yet she need not have felt so bitter a pang had she taken the trouble to glance at her image in the near mirror it reflected a tall stylish figure which in the dim light of the drawing-room looked majestic and beautiful it was all very well to think that she appeared barely thirty in the twilight but she knew well that the daylight showed her forty-seven years in the most merciless manner velvet robes diamond necklaces and such like aids to beauty would not make up for lack of youth and claude's ill-advised start brought this home to her ten years before she had married hilliston in utter ignorance of the house at hampstead though she did not know it she was not unlike her rival there was the same majesty the same imperious beauty the same passionate nature but mrs bessel was worn and wasted by illness whereas mrs hilliston aided by art looked a rarely beautiful woman People said she had not done well to marry Hilliston. She was then a rich widow from America and wanted to take a position in society. With her looks and her money she might have married a title, but handsome Hilliston crossed her path, and though he was then fifty years of age, she fell in love with him on the spot. Wearied of Mrs. Bessel, anxious to mend his failing fortunes, Hilliston accepted the homage thus offered. He did not love her, but kept that knowledge to himself so mrs derrick the wealthy widow secured the man she idolized she gave all wealth beauty love and received nothing in return during all their married life her love had undergone no abatement she loved her husband passionately and her one object in life was to please him at the time of the marriage she had rather resented the presence of claude in hilliston's house but soon accepted him as an established fact the more so as he took up his profession shortly afterward and left her to reign alone over the heart of her husband when the young man called she was always kind to him she constantly looked after his welfare and playfully styled herself his mother claude was greatly attached to her and spoke of her in the highest terms but for the life of him he could not suppress that start though he knew it wounded her to the heart during his five years of absence she had aged greatly and art seemed rather to accentuate than conceal the truth you find me altered i am afraid said she bitterly age is robbing me of my looks by no means answered claude with a desire to please her at the worst you are only growing old gracefully small comfort in that sighed mrs helliston i do not want to grow old at all however it is no use fighting the inevitable but i hope i'll die before i become a hag you will never become one i'm not so sure of that i'm one of those large women who turn to bones and wrinkles in old age in my eyes you will always be beautiful louise said hilliston who entered at this moment you are an angel ever bright and fair you have not lost the art of saying pretty things francis replied his wife greatly gratified but there is the gong. Claude, take your mother in to dinner. The young man winced as she said this, thinking of his real mother who lay sick and feeble at Hampstead. Hilliston saw his change of countenance and bit his lip to prevent himself remarking thereon. He guessed what Claude was thinking about, and thus his thoughts were turned in the same direction. At the present moment, the memories thus evoked were most unpleasant. During dinner, Mrs. Hilliston recovered her spirits and talked freely enough. No one was present save Claude and her husband, so they were a very pleasant party of three. While in the full flow of conversation, Claude could not help thinking that Tate was unjust to suspect the master of the house of underhand dealings, for Hilliston was full of smiles and geniality and did his best to entertain his guest. Could Claude have looked below the surface, he would have been considerably astonished at the inward aspect of the man. Yet a hint was given him of such want of concord, for Hilliston showed the cloven hoof before the meal ended so you are going to eastbourne said claude addressing himself to mrs hilliston i hope you will come over to Thorston during your stay it is not unlikely replied the lady francis intends to make excursions all round the country only for your amusement my dear said hilliston hastily you know how dreary it is to pace daily up and down that parade i think eastbourne is dreary in any case it is solely on your account that i am going hilliston did not answer but stole a glance at claude to see what he thought the face of the young man was inscrutable though claude was mentally considering that tate was right and hilliston's journey to eastbourne was undertaken to interview Jenny paynton i don't like your english watering-places continued mrs hilliston idly they are so exasperatingly dull in america we have a good time at newport but all your south coast is devoid of amusement Trouville or dieppe are more enjoyable than eastbourne or folkestone the fault of the national character my dear louise we english take our pleasures sadly you know for the sole purpose of seeing what effect it would produce on the lawyer claude purposely introduced the name of the town where his father had met his death i wonder you don't try an inland watering-place mrs hilliston he said calmly bath or turnbridge wells or horriston hilliston looked up quickly and then busied himself with his food discomposed as he was his iron will enabled him to retain a quiet demeanour but the effect of the name on the wife was more pronounced than it was on the husband her colour went and she laid down her knife and fork ah i don't know horriston she said faintly some inland ah how hot this room is open the window she added to the footman we want fresh air rather astonished at the effect thus produced claude would have spoken but that hilliston forestalled him the room is hot he said lightly but the fresh air will soon revive you louise i am glad we are going to eastbourne for you sadly need a change the season has been rather trying replied his wife resuming her dinner what were you saying about Horriston, claude nothing i only know it is a provincial town set in beautiful scenery i thought you might wish to try a change from the fashionable seaside place i might go there if it is pretty answered mrs hilliston who was now perfectly composed where is horriston in kent interposed hilliston quickly not very far from canterbury i have been there myself but as it is a rather dull neighbourhood i would not advise you to try it despite her denial claude felt certain that mrs hilliston was acquainted with horston for on the plea of indisposition she left the table before the dinner was ended as she passed through the door she playfully tipped claude on the shoulder with her fan don't forget to come and see us at eastbourne she said vivaciously and bring mr tate with you he is a great favourite of mine this claude promised to do and when she left the room returned to his seat with a rather puzzled expression on his face hilliston saw the look and endeavoured to banish it by a hasty explanation you rather startled my wife by mentioning horriston he said in an annoyed tone i wish you had not done so as it is connected with the case she naturally feels an antipathy toward it what does mrs hilliston know about my father's death asked claude in some surprise "Yes." when we married she wanted to know why you lived in the house with me so i was forced to explain all the circumstances do you think that was necessary i do you know how suspicious women are replied hilliston lightly they will know the truth but you can trust to her discretion claude no one will hear of it from her at this moment a footman entered the room with a message from mrs hilliston my mistress wants to know if you have the third volume of a whim of fate sir said the servant no replied hilliston sharply tell your mistress that i took it to my office by mistake she will have it to-morrow claude thought this strange and when the footman retired hilliston made another explanation equally as unsatisfactory as the first i am so interested in that book that i could not leave it at home he said quickly and now that i have met the author i am doubly interested in it another proof of tate's acumen hilliston was the first to introduce the subject of john parver eighteen a duel of words a longish pause ensued between the two men hilliston seemed to be in no hurry to continue the conversation and claude with his eyes fixed absently on his glass pondered over the facts that mrs hilliston had an aversion to Horriston, and that the lawyer had taken the third volume of the novel out of the house the two facts seemed to have some connection with each other but what the connection might be claude could not rightly conclude From his frequent talks with Tate, he knew that the third volume contained the episode of the scarf pin, which was instrumental in bringing the fictitious murderer to justice. The assassin in the novel was meant for Hilliston, and remembering this, Claude wondered whether there might not be some reason for his removal of the book. Mrs. Hilliston had quailed at the mention of Horriston, and the explanation given by her husband did not satisfy Larcher. What reason could she have for taking more than a passing interest in the tragic story? why after ten years should she pale at the mention of the neighbourhood claude asked himself these two questions but could find no satisfactory answer to either of them he was toying with his wine-glass while thinking when a sudden thought made him grip the slender stem with spasmodic force was it possible that mrs hilliston could have been in the neighbourhood five-and-twenty years before that she could have heard some talk of that scarf-pin which was not mentioned at the trial but which tate insisted was an actual fact and no figment of the novelist's brain and finally could it be that hilliston had purposely removed the third volume of a whim of fate so that his wife should not have her memory refreshed by a relation of the incident it was very strange thus thinking claude glanced stealthily at his guardian who was musingly smoking his cigar and drinking his wine he looked calm and content and prosperous nevertheless claude was by no means so sure of his innocence as he had been hilliston's confusion his hesitation his evasion instilled doubts into the young man's mind he determined to gain a knowledge of the truth by questions and mentally arranged these as follows first he would try and learn somewhat of the past of mrs hilliston for beyond the fact that she was an american he knew nothing of it second he would lead hilliston to talk of the scarf-pin and see if the reference annoyed him and third he would endeavour to discover if the lawyer was averse to his wife reading the novel with his plans thus cut and dried he spoke abruptly to his guardian i am sorry mrs hilliston's health is so bad it is not bad my dear fellow replied the lawyer lifting his head she is a very strong woman but of course the fatigue of a london season tells on the healthiest constitution that is why i wish her to go to eastbourne why not take her to horriston why should i she connects the place with the story of your father about whom i was forced to speak ten years ago and speaking personally i have no desire to return there and recall the horrors of the past you were greatly affected by my father's death naturally he was my dearest friend i would have given anything to discover the assassin Did Mrs. Hilliston give you her opinion as to who was guilty? No, I told her as little as I could of so painful a subject. She is not in possession of all the facts. At that rate, why let her read a whim of fate? I don't wish her to read it, answered Hilliston quietly. But I left the novel lying about, and she read the first two volumes. If I can help it, she shall not finish the story. Why object to her reading the third volume? because it would recall the past too vividly to her mind i hardly follow you there said claude with a keen look the fact to which you refer cannot exist for your wife to her the novel can only be a second telling of the story related by you when she wished to know who i was that is very true nevertheless it made so painful an impression on her excitable nature that i am unwilling that her memory should be refreshed take another glass of wine my boy hilliston evidently wished to turn the conversation but claude was too determined on learning the truth to deviate from his course slowly filling his glass with claret he pushed the jug toward hilliston and pursued his questioning the american nature is rather excitable isn't it by the way is mrs hilliston a pure-blooded yankee yes said hilliston with suspicious promptitude she was a chicago belle and married a millionaire in the pork line called derrick He died soon after the marriage so she came to england and married me it was her first visit to england no doubt her first visit replied hilliston gravely all her former life was passed in new york boston and chicago but what odd questions you ask added the lawyer in a vexed tone surely you do not think that my wife was at horriston twenty-five years ago or that she knows aught of this crime save what i have told her of course i think nothing of the sort said larcher hastily and what is more he believed what he said it was impossible that mrs hilliston american-born and bred who had only been in england twelve years should know anything of an obscure crime committed in a dull provincial town thirteen years before the date of her arrival hitherto his questionings had eventuated in little so he turned the conversation into another groove and tried to learn if hilliston knew anything of jenny Payton what do you think of john parver he seemed an intelligent young fellow is that his real name no his name is frank linton the son of the vicar of thorston what he belongs to the place whither you go with tate exclaimed hilliston with a startled air that is strange you may learn there whence he obtained the materials for his novel i know that he obtained them from miss paynton who is she a literary young lady who lives at thorston with her folks but i fancy linton mentioned that he had told you about her well he did and he didn't said hilliston in some confusion that is he admitted that the story was founded on fact but he did not tell me whence he obtained such facts i suppose it is your intention to question this young lady yes i want to know how she heard of the matter pooh read it in a provincial newspaper no doubt i think not replied claude with some point it is next to impossible that she should come across a paper containing an account of the trial people don't keep such gruesome matters by them unless they have an interest in doing so well this young lady cannot be one of those persons how old is she four and twenty ah said hilliston with a sigh of relief she was not born when your father was murdered you must see she can know nothing positive of the matter then how did she supply linton with the materials for this book i can only answer that question by reverting to my theory of the newspaper well even granting that it is so said larcher quickly she knows details of the case which are not set forth in the newspaper how do you know this asked hilliston biting his lip to control his feelings because in the third volume nonsense nonsense interrupted hilliston violently you seem to forget that the hard facts of the case have been twisted and turned by the novelist's brain we do not know who slew your father but the novelist had to end his story he had to solve the mystery and he has done so after his own fashion rising from his seat he paced hurriedly to and fro talking the while with an agitation strange in so hard and self-controlled a man for instance the character of michael dean is obviously taken from me it is not a bit like me of course either in speech or looks or dress all the novelist knew was that i had given evidence at the trial and that the dead man had been my dearest friend the circumstances suggested a striking dramatic situation that the dear friend had committed the crime for the base love of the wife michael dean is guilty in the novel but the man in real life myself You know all I know of the case. I would give ten years of my life, short as the span now is, to find the man who killed George Larcher. This was strong speaking, and carried conviction to the heart of Claude, the more so when Hilliston further explained himself. On the night of the murder, I was at the ball three miles off. I knew nothing of the matter till I was called upon to identify the corpse of your father. It was hardly recognizable, and the face was much disfigured but i recognized him by the color of his hair and the seal on his finger how was it that my father was dressed as darnley john parver explains that said hilliston sharply "Jerringham, i forget his name in the novel was dressed as darnley and i believe as is set forth in the book that george larcher assumed the dress so that under his mask your mother might mistake him for Jeringham. evidently she did so as he learned that she loved Jeringham one moment Interposed Claude quickly. My mother denies that Jeringham was her lover. Your mother? Mrs. Bessel. True. I forgot for the moment that you knew she was alive. No doubt she is right. And Jeringham was only her friend. But in the novel he is her lover. Michael Deane, drawn from myself, is her lover. You see, fact and fiction are so mixed up that there is no getting at the truth. I shall get at the truth said claude quietly never after such a lapse of time you can discover nothing better let the dead past bury its dead i advised you before i advise you now you will only torture your life cumbered with a useless task george larcher is dead and buried in dust by this time no one knows who killed him no one shall ever know i am determined to learn the truth i hope you may but be advised leave this matter alone you do not know what misery you may be laying up for yourself why you have not even a clue to start from unless added hilliston with a sneer you follow the example of the novelist and elucidate the mystery by means of the scarf-pin again tate was right hilliston had himself introduced the subject of the scarf-pin Claude immediately took advantage of the opening. "'I suppose that episode is fiction?' "'Of course it is. No scarf-pin was found in the garden. Nothing was found but the dagger. You know that Michael Dean is supposed to drop that scarf-pin on the spot.' "'Well, I am the living representative of Michael Dean, and I assure you I never owned a garnet cross with a central diamond.' "'Is that the description of the scarf-pin?' "'Yes.' do you not remember a small maltese cross of garnets with a diamond in the centre the description sounds fictitious who ever saw such an ornament in real life but in detective novels the solution of the mystery turns on such grugaws a scarf-pin a stud a link a brooch all these go to hang a man in novels this assertion that the episode of the scarf-pin was fiction was in direct contradiction to that of tate who declared it to be true claude was torn by conflicting doubts but ultimately put the matter out of his thoughts miss paynton alone could give a correct opinion as to whether it had emanated from her fertile brain or was really a link in the actual case judging from the speech of hilliston and the silence of the newspaper reports claude believed that tate was wrong The lawyer and his guest did not go to the drawing-room, as Mrs. Hilliston sent word that she was going to bed with a bad headache. Under the circumstances, Claude took his leave, having, as he thought, extracted all necessary information from Hilliston. Moreover, he was anxious to get back to Tate's chambers and hear what the little man had to say about Mrs. Bessel. Hilliston said good-bye to him at the door. "'I shall see you at Eastbourne, I suppose,' he said genially. "'Yes.' I will drive over and tell you what Miss Paynton says. The door closed, and Hilliston, with a frown on his face, stood looking at the floor. He was by no means satisfied with the result of the interview. I wish I could stop him, he muttered, clenching his fist. Stop him at any price. If he goes on, he will learn the truth. And if he learns the truth, ah! He drew a long breath and went upstairs to his wife as he ascended the stairs it seemed to him as though he heard the halting step of nemesis following stealthily behind End of chapter seventeen and eighteen